Good afternoon. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Mozart, Vitamin D, and Missing Children. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Franklin Felber, who will discuss traveling near the speed of light. Also, we'll find out what geophagy is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Groks. Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty harmonious. Well, it is a harmonious time of year. 2006 is completely harmonious. Why is that? It's the 250th anniversary of Mozart's birth. Unfortunately, one of the greatest mysteries is his skull that's uh, being owned by the Mozartium. Is that really his skull? And unfortunately, uh, the latest DNA investigation shows that it's inconclusive. Surprised there's a controversy surrounding it. Yes, the claims of the skulls are actually quite dubious since it's been handed over several times uh. by random people and with uncertain types of identification. And what they did was they compared the DNA in that skull with DNA that's found at the unmarked grave where he was supposedly buried. Mm-hmm. But what's even making it more complicated complicated is that the different DNA samples from the grave don't match up. Well, so apparently he was a chimera of various <laughs> different people put together, much like Shakespeare. Yes, maybe he was a conglomerate of different composers. Well, that would make sense considering his pure genius. <laughs> Couldn't have been one person, right? Anyways, the mystery lives on, but the music... It lives even longer. <laughs> is, yeah, it's <laughs> even longer. Well, the study was carried out by the Institute for Forensic Medicine in Innsbruck, and a lead scientist is Walter Parson. This is widely reported in the news in Austria and abroad. All right, well, they might not be able to tell if that's Mozart's skull or not, but if he had been strangled or just suffocated, they might have been able to tell. It's still what they did with King Tut or King Ramsey's uh, skull. I-, I thought they came up with some recent finding that he was murdered. He was hit in the head or something like that. Uh, okay, well, I guess if you just see a big hole in the skull, then that might be <laughs> <laughs> a good education. That's the sign, right? Right. But there's apparently a new technique that's been developed by a team at Nagasaki University led by Kazuya Ikamatsu and his colleagues, where they've been able to show that whether somebody's strangled or just merely suffocates, there's a different pattern of gene activity around the skin cells. In your last few moments, how you respond is actually affected at the molecular level then. Yeah, that's what it seems. Various genes are turned on and off and like trying to compensate for lack of oxygen. Again, this is an interesting discovery that perhaps could be of use to forensic scientists when they're trying to determine cause of death in some instances. Right. Very fascinating work, but most methods in forensic science, it's going to have to go through a lot of testing just to make sure that it's useful for the broad population uh-huh. of people uh-huh. and natural variations taken into account. And also, like most other fields, according to Davis and Gableson of the University of Alabama, they're saying it's a fairly conservative industry. If the old methods work, it's going to take a lot of effort to try and get new methods to mm-hmm. come into it. But if anyone's interested in this, they can take a look at a recent edition of Legal Medicine. Charles, how was the ratio when you went to college? 
ratios of proteins to carbohydrates? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that ratio. The ratio of oxygen to nitrogen in the atmosphere? No, no, the other one, the one that all teenagers are interested in. The uh, ratio of the Xbox to PlayStation games. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're getting close, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Almost there. I, I imagine then the, the only possible thing could be the ratio of boys to girls. <laughs> yes. One of the girls was saying for girls, it was like, the odds are good for them, but the goods were odd. <laughs> Yes, that is certainly the case whenever you go to <laughs> technical school. like. So it turns out this could be a serious problem in countries like India and China. A recent finding blames it on the widespread use of ultrasound. Uh, first of all, there's the one-child policy in China for quite some time. Yes. And, of course, prevalence or the wish to have a boy rather than a girl, right? Right, yeah. right. So over the last 20 years, it's been estimated about 10 million female fetuses have been aborted because they had this prior knowledge of the sex of their uh, baby. Right, right. And they wanted a boy rather than a girl. Right. And basically, it's already posing a serious issue in China. So in China alone, it's been estimated about 40 million bachelors may not be able to find brides. Well, I think I know at least one of those. <laughs> and it's not for lack of trying, I think. <laughs> but other broad impacts include a sharp rise in prostitution. It is the oldest profession and certainly one that I think would be Most highly... basic human need that yeah, needs to be satisfied. Right. And, you know, supply and demand issue. Uh-huh. And something that I had read earlier was that there seems to be a correlation between uh, the likelihood of wars breaking out and the population of excess young males. It was sort of a natural culling of population. Yes. Nature finds a way. You know, it may not be a disturbing revelation here, but most likely there will be some serious problems. Well, at least I can blame the ratio on my bachelorhood rather <laughs> than any kind of personal issues. <laughs> <laughs> and this was recently reported in The Lancet. All right, and finally, one more thing to perhaps make you uh, even more attractive to the fairer sex, vitamin D. Skin, right? For building strong bones and uh, healthy bodies. And it turns out now researchers say it also improves lung function. Uh, you know, I just use my chi. <laughs> How is your chi nowadays? Pretty good. Drink a lot of hot water, though. Okay, well, you got to have the chi flow, because if it stagnates, then it's really bad. Yes. <laughs> so Peter N. Black, a uh, researcher at the University of Auckland, is actually interested in a disease called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which happens in a lot of smokers where they have inflammatory disease of the lungs. They did a large-scale study of people who either were taking a lot of vitamin D or not. And though they didn't find that the excess amount of vitamin D that people take prevents the COPD disease, mm -hmm. it does appear to help with actually improving lung function. I thought it's also been known that people who spend, you know, a nominal amount of time in the sunlight also have more vitamin D. Right. There's this pathway through the skin, which actually allows the conversion uh, of precursor cholesterol type molecules into vitamin D. Right. But of course, you can get it from other sources like milk yes. and such. This is just very fascinating work. It, it shows that there might be another possible benefit to vitamin D. And by blocking matrix metalloproteinases, which create COPD type enzymes, by blocking those things, apparently vitamin D actually helps improve lung function. Again, fascinating work. It'll help you breathe easier if you're drinking a little more vitamin D. What about cheese, then? <laughs> <laughs> Have a little fondue with, with your cereal, and everything will be good. Mm -mm. It was published in a recent edition of Photochemistry and Photobiology. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Dr. Franklin Felber will join us to discuss traveling near the speed of light. So stay tuned.
and welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, traveling at the speed of light to distant planets has been the stuff of science fiction for decades. But is such travel physically possible? Well, new research presented at the Space Technology and Applications International Forum indicates that near light speed travel may indeed be possible, perhaps even before the end of the century. Well, join us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this possibility is Dr. Franklin Felber. Dr. Felber, during his 30-year career, has led physics research and development programs for numerous government agencies, including the Army, Navy, Air Force, DARPA, and uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. In addition, he has published more than 100 papers and abstracts and more than 100 classified reports in numerous uh, physical topics, including pulsed power, plasma physics, survivability, optical seeker, and the list goes on, in fact. Dr. Felber is, in fact, currently serving as vice president of Starmark, uh, which he's co-founded in 1987, where one of his current projects is leading an Air Force program to boost the X-ray power output of the Saturn Accelerator at Sandia National Laboratories. He joins us today on uh, the Grok Science Show to discuss the fascinating uh, possibility of traveling at least at the speed of light. Uh, Dr. Felber, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is a, certainly a fascinating uh, research that you presented recently. I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, describe what the uh, overall problem that you'd solved and presented to this group here at Space Technology Forum. Sure. About 90 years ago, Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity, which describes how space-time is curved by the presence of mass and energy and momentum. And his gravitational field equation has been solved in a few instances exactly, but until now it had never been solved for the following case. What if you have a mass traveling close to the speed of light? What does the gravitational field of that mass look like? And how does it accelerate or how does it affect other masses in the vicinity? Hmm. So I solved that problem and found to my surprise that the sign of the gravitational field, that instead of attracting other masses, when masses get going close to the speed of light, they actually repel other masses in their path. Hmm. Uh, is, it, is it proportional, I guess, to the mass in the same way that the gravitational uh, attraction? Uh, yes, of course. You know, anything coming out of Einstein's uh, theory hmm. of general relativity hmm. says basically what Galileo found several hundred year, years ago, that all masses follow the same trajectory from the same position. I see. So is it completely in inverse proportion to the uh, gravitational attraction force, this anti-gravity uh, repulsion that uh, you get at um, the speed of light? Well, uh, what you would say is that this uh, gravitational force that comes out of Einstein's field equation is directly proportional to the mass that is being affected. Uh, is it also dependent on how close to the speed of light you get? Yes. Now, now there, there's a, a huge difference yeah. between... Well, well, of course, Newton's theory, uh, th there is no effect on gravity of the source of the gravitational field for what the velocity of the source may be. But in Einstein's theory, there is a strong dependence on the velocity of the source of the gravitational field. And in particular, when the field starts getting repulsive at speeds close to the speed of light, the force rises extremely strongly as you get closer and closer to the speed of light. And, and this had never been predicted before. Yeah, uh, that's because there have been solutions of Einstein's gravitational field equation for slow-moving masses, hmm. masses that are moving so slowly that their velocity effects were non-relativistic. That is, where Einstein's theories don't really, where his theory of special relativity does not really come into play. 
But once you start getting to a good fraction of the speed of light, which might be more than about, say, one-tenth the speed of light, then you start getting some strange effects, uh, some of which you know you may be aware of, like the time dilation and length contraction and uh, the increase of mass. And, and these effects conspire as you get very close to the speed of light, according to Einstein's field equation, to give an extraordinarily uh, strong force uh, in the repelling direction as you get closer to the speed of light. I see, I see. And the implication, I guess, that you propose is that somehow using this property, I guess, of traveling to the speed of light, you can actually accelerate payloads or even humans toward uh, Well, that, that's correct. Now, to help understand that, l- let me just point out something that that is well known in the physics community about the strong gravitational fields of black holes, Mm. or any strong gravitational fields. And that is that Einstein's theory predicts that clocks appear to slow down in gravitational fields. Mm. So if you were looking at a clock approaching a strong gravitational field in particular, let's say that of a black hole, as the clock gets closer and closer to the black hole, you would see the clock moving slower and slower. And in fact, the clock would appear to almost come to rest as it approached the black hole. So if you think of what a person would see or an observer would see from a great distance, if the black hole were speeding along, heading towards a payload, let's say, Mm -hmm. as the black hole got closer to the payload, the payload speed would have to approach the black hole speed as it got closer to the horizon of the black hole. And so, in fact, you would see the payload starting from rest being accelerated in the same direction that the black hole was moving. Now, that's a strong field effect. It turns out that this repulsion also works even for weak fields, like a cosmic ray. Cosmic ray coming towards the Earth at relativistic speeds has its own little anti-gravity beam, you know, a narrow cone in front of it in Mm. which it has a repulsive gravitational force. Mm. How strong would that force be, and could you actually move uh, large payloads with that? Uh, Well, yeah. Uh, What you want to do is start out with a source of the gravitational field that Mm -hmm. is very much more massive than the payload, because the energy requirements here are completely staggering, and and I'll mention that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But as long as the source of the gravitational field is very much greater than the payload you're trying to accelerate, then it won't even notice the loss of energy that it gives up to accelerate the payload because it has so much more energy. The energy it loses in propulsion of a payload would be negligible. Now, having said that, I want to back up and point out that the energy requirements are totally mind-boggling for accelerating payloads to close to the speed of light. And by the way, this is not a faster-than-light concept, and it's not even speed-of-light concept. Hmm. What this might do when one finds a suitable source uh, for this gravitational field Mm -hmm. is uh, get a payload moving close to the speed of light, according to Einstein's Hmm. field equation. But to get back to energy requirements for just a moment, if you try to accelerate a one-ton payload... Uh, which is about, say, the the weight of an ordinary-sized car, to just nine-tenths the speed of light, the energy of motion that that payload would have at nine-tenths the speed of light is the same as the explosive energy in 30 billion 
tons of TNT, or equivalently, it's the same as the explosive energy of two million atom bombs of the kind that was dropped on Hiroshima. Hmm. Now, if you could imagine dropping two million atom bombs of that size on cities around the world, uh, first of all, there aren't even two million cities of that size, of <laughs> the size of Hiroshima around the world. So you'd end up dropping them on towns of a thousand or two thousand population, but it would completely wipe out civilization. And that is the energy of motion in just one one-ton payload traveling mm-hmm. at nine-tenths the speed of light. Mm-hmm. So what this solution possibly addresses is a new means of overcoming these daunting energy requirements in getting propulsion to close to the speed of light. Right. I think I recall Freeman Dyson uh, way back in the time actually suggested accelerating up. You know what? You're absolutely right, and I'm, I'm impressed. There was a program here in San Diego, a classified program called Project Orion, in which they did propose using atom bombs for propulsion, and that did not get anywhere. One of the reasons it didn't get anywhere brings up the second big advantage of using gravitational fields for near light speed propulsion, and that is for conventional propulsion, uh, you have to overcome certain stress limitations. Mm -hmm. Whenever you try to accelerate anything quickly, Mm-hmm. You're applying a, a pressure to it, and the mm-hmm. more quickly you try to accelerate it, the greater the pressure you have to apply. Mm-hmm. And these uh, applied pressures can damage equipment and kill humans and do other adverse things. However, if the acceleration is by a gravitational means, then essentially you're floating weightlessly within the gravitational field of the source mm-hmm. of uh, this uh, propulsive energy. And the only forces you would feel would be small tidal forces across the dimensions of your payload. So you suggested that such an acceleration might even be possible by the end of the century. What would need to happen before this uh, actually Yeah, Uh, okay. So this means of propulsion, future propulsion, uh, solves two of the great engineering challenges of near speed of light travel. Mm -hmm. One of them being that it would provide a source of the uh, tremendous energy that's needed, and it would overcome these uh, stress and pressure limitations. But it does introduce another engineering challenge, and that is finding a source of the gravitational field that's suitable uh, to produce Mm -hmm. this propulsion, and not only finding it, but then positioning your payload out in front of it Mm -hmm. at the proper position to get accelerated off in the direction that you want to go. And that is the challenge that I think we would not be able to perhaps overcome until towards the end of this century. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much relying on trying to find some body moving near the speed of light. Well, uh, at a good fraction of the speed of light. Basically, there's a a threshold for when this repulsive Mm -hmm. effect takes over, and and that is the speed of light divided by the square root of 3, which works out to 57.7% of the speed of light. So yes, you need to find a large mass moving close to the speed of light and, and then get out in front of it. Well, I guess we're running slowly out of time, but I guess the the big question then is, how would you slow down at the end? Yes. Well, we haven't quite figured that out yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so uh, once you're on your way, you're on your way. But I, I would think that perhaps unmanned missions might be the way to go at first. <laughs> Just shoot them out there and see what happens. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I guess we are uh, a little bit out of time, but Dr. Felber, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show and discussing this very fascinating topic. I certainly appreciate the opportunity. And you were just listening to Dr. Franklin Felber discussing traveling near the speed of light. 
You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. and we're ready to play the uh, game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, relativistic speeds. So as we all know, as you're traveling close to the speed of light, there's the change in the uh, perception of time. And what the Grokatron 5000 would like to know is, for the falling five people, if you were near them, would it seem like time was moving faster or time was moving slower than normally? Hmm. Okay. All right. So, Dr. Felber, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? I may be ready. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, The Grokatron 5000, person number one, faster or slower, Warren Buffett? Well, let's see... I don't know that I could put his fabulous investment wisdom to good use if, if I were off traveling away from Earth at close to the speed of light, and I would quickly tire of playing bridge with him, so uh, <laughs> I'd have to say slower. Okay. Uh, all right, number two, Chuck Norris. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I suppose I could practice my karate moves with him, so I, I'm going to say that time would be like proper time, just about the same. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, the famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking. Oh, you know, I once turned down an offer to join his group 30 years ago. Oh, really? Time would elapse very quickly with him because he would be an endless source of delightful intellectual stimulation for me. He he helped me some uh, when I was working on my thesis. uh, All right. Number four, Paris Hilton. Time would travel real fast with her, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Although, uh, don't tell my wife that. Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll try and keep it not to her then. All right. And uh, number five, finally, of course, the president of the United States, George Bush. Hmm. You know, I suspected from listening to a couple of your earlier broadcasts (laughs) that he might be involved in this. All right. (laughs) I would say it might times travel faster and might at times travel slower, depending on his mood at the moment. I I think that's a politically safe uh, thing to say. I I think uh, position yourself in the centrist position here. So. All right. Well, Professor Felber, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and of course, uh, discussing the fascinating work of traveling near the speed of light. Well, thanks again. It was fun. All right. Well, thank you very much. So long. Mm-hmm. And Yoda, with the answer to last week's question of the week, good food, good food, but dirt it is. Hmm. And condition called geophagy you have if you eat the dirt. Hmm. Good food, good food. Mr. Anderson, here you are trying to escape with your EMF pulse, but it's not going to help you any. Well, do you know what it is? Email us at groks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you'll be able to free your mind. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Bye.